Hello everyone, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. I'm really excited to share this story with everyone, as it is a bit lesser known in the history of surgery, but very interesting. We're going to talk about a New Zealand plastic surgeon who found himself in charge of a ward caring for airmen from Britain's Royal Air Force in World War II. He would take an innovative approach to caring for these wounded warriors, taking care not just of their bodies, but their minds, and helping them to reintegrate into society. His influence on these men led them to form their own social group called the Guinea Pig Club, in honor of the man who treated them, and in the process, made them whole again. Let's meet Dr. Archibald Hector McIndoe in this episode of Legends of Surgery. McIndoe was born on May 4, 1900, in Dunedin, New Zealand. His grandfather had emigrated to the extreme south of New Zealand. A quick aside, am I the only one who wondered where Old Zealand was? Well, I looked it up for your benefit. The westernmost province in the Netherlands is known as Zeeland, which is Dutch for Sea Land. The first European to land in New Zealand was the Dutch explorer Abel Tasman in 1642. And yes, Tasmania, the island state of Australia, is named after him. Okay, back to Mackendo. He studied at the Otago Boys High School and the University of Otago Medical School, which had opened in 1875. Otago is a region in the south of New Zealand and is in an old Maori word meaning either isolated village, or place of red earth. After graduation, he became the house surgeon at Waikato Hospital in Hamilton, New Zealand. By 1924, McIndoe earned the first fellowship to be granted to a New Zealander to study at the Mayo Clinic in the U.S. The fellowship was for an unmarried doctor, but he'd recently married Adonia Atkin, which he had kept secret. McIndoe sailed without her, but couldn't keep up the secret forever, and she joined him 12 months later. He studied pathological anatomy, and worked in the clinic as first assistant in surgery from 1925 to 1927, and became an expert abdominal surgeon and published on the chronic liver disease hepatitis, as well as mapping the normal and pathological blood supply of the liver, theorizing that, based on the dual blood supply to the liver, one could shut off while excising part of the liver. Now, Lord Moynihan, a well-known British abdominal surgeon and president of Royal College of Surgeons of England, visited the Mayo Clinic and was impressed by McIndoe. He suggested a career in England and invited him to take up a post as professor of surgery in the postgraduate medical school in England. So, in 1930, McIndoe moved to London with his wife and daughter. But when he arrived, there was no surgical professorship waiting for him and he couldn't find work. Now, luckily, and maybe serendipitously, his cousin Sir Harold Gillies was working in England. Gillies was a New Zealand-born, London-based ENT surgeon who specialized in plastic surgery and is considered one of the early pioneers of plastic surgery based on his work during World War I on reconstructing injured faces. Gillies invited his cousin McIndoe to join his private practice and got him a job at St. Bartholomew's Hospital where he became a clinical assistant. Under Gillies' tutelage, McIndoe became an expert in the field of plastic surgery, working in the reconstruction of cleft palates, fractured jaws, cleft lips, and doing some cosmetic work like facelifts, breast reconstruction, and rhinoplasties. See Podcast 41 on the history of rhinoplasties. Now, McIndoe became skilled at reforming noses and even gained publicity for what became known as McIndoe's Nose. By 1932, he had a permanent appointment as a general surgeon and lecturer at the Hospital for Tropical Diseases and the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. As the 1930s progressed, the shadow of war began to creep over Europe, and Britain began to prepare herself. In 1938, on the recommendation of Gillies, McIndoe was appointed consultant in plastic surgery to the Royal Air Force. However, he did have one condition that he would remain a civilian rather than a commissioned officer, so he would not be subject to any military discipline. 
1939, McIndoe was working as a consulting plastic surgeon to the Royal North Stafford Infirmatory and the Croydon General Hospital. But when war broke out, he was appointed to the Queen Victoria Cottage Hospital in East Grinstead, Sussex. The unit was known first as the Maxillofacial Unit, but in 1941 the name changed to the Plastic Surgery and Jaw Injury Centre. The word cottage in the hospital name was dropped in 1943, which had by then expanded to 230 beds. McIndoe was responsible for the hundreds of burned airmen and bomber crewmen. This was needed given the new and terrible injuries to pilots. Known as Airman's Burn or Hurricane Burn after one of the types of planes used by the RAF, these were deep, full-thickness burns to areas of functional importance like the hands and face, leading to significant disfigurement. The fighter planes used by the RAF, primarily the Hurricane and the Spitfire, were powered by aviation fuel, and both carried a lot of it, to give the power to speed through the dogfights over Europe. The problem was that this fuel was highly flammable, and would catch easily when hit by enemy fire. The flames would spread quickly, and would burn hot around 700 degrees Celsius, causing terrible burns. In fact, from 1940 to 1945, approximately 4,500 burned air crewmen were recovered by rescue squads from crashed planes or parachutes. Two-thirds of these men had burns to the face and hands. Now, the number of burned pilots reached a fever pitch during the Battle of Britain, so let's talk about that for a minute. Between July and October of 1940, Germany's Air Force, the Luftwaffe, were sent by Hitler to gain control of the skies over England in preparation for the planned land invasion called Operation Sea Lion. The RAF had the help of land-based radar and an army of volunteers that would watch the skies to identify German planes early enough for the fighter pilots to respond. They were able to overcome the raids, dealing a fatal blow to the Luftwaffe and keeping England free, which would allow it to later amass the forces needed to invade Europe on D-Day. During the Battle of Britain, a period of just four months, Magno's ward received 35 burned pilots. So how did he deal with this problem of so many severely burned young men, one that had never really been dealt with before? Well, let's first take a survey of burn treatments before the war. At that time, little was known about the treatment of severe burns and their complications, and even less about rehabilitation and social reintegration. Most of the treatments of the 1920s and 30s were conservative and chemical, and operations were rare. The main concept was coagulation. Most physicians used tannic acid to protect the injured areas and reduce fluid loss, but this impaired healing and the reconstruction of traumatized areas. For example, eyelids would stiffen, leading to corneal injuries and even blindness, and there was a high incidence of secondary infection leading to the loss of fingers from gangrene and even death from overwhelming infection. Skin grafting on sites treated with tannic acid was almost impossible as it caused thick scars. McIndoe was able to convince the war ministry to ban the use of tannic acid, his alternative was saline, meaning salt water, baths, mechanical dressings, which is the use of wet and dry dressings to remove dead tissue, and dusting of the wounds with sulfonamides, an early type of antibiotic, until the wounds were ready for grafting. And this eventually became the national standard. So let's get into a bit more detail. Patients were lowered by stretcher into a salty solution daily, and the immersion promoted healing and kept the wound flexible. There were alternate two-hour saline and half-strength usol dressings, Usol is an antiseptic solution, applied over a single layer of toll grass. Toll grass is a fine mesh net fabric embedded with paraffin oil. An example of a modern version would be bactigrass. Now, strict cleanliness was observed with early removal of all sloughs and complete absence of trauma. Immediate assessment of the sensitivity of various organisms present to all antibiotics available was done. Now, interestingly, 
The use of sailing baths came from his observation that many of the airmen that bailed out into the Atlantic Ocean appeared to be in better shape than those who ended up on dry land. They would have less pain, their burns would be cleaner, and it was easier for surgeons to graft on new skin. So next, let's talk a bit about flaps and grafts. So flaps are tissue moved from a donor site with an intact blood supply, whereas grafts rely on growth of new blood vessels. McIndoe pioneered the use of flap construction to rebuild facial features and hands and used an amazing technique for grafting tissue called the waltzing tubed pedicle. Now this was actually introduced during World War I by his cousin Harold Gillies, but McIndoe refined it, making it even more effective. A picture tells a thousand words, so I'll post some images on Twitter, but here's the basic idea. A flap of skin would be cut from an area of healthy skin, like the thigh, and its long edges would be sewn together to form a tube. One end of the tube would be left attached, and the other would be attached to another part of the body, closer to the desired site. So if the final destination was the face, the tube might be attached to a wrist, and then moved end over end until it could be attached directly to the face. So, in a sense, the tube would waltz over the body to get to the recipient's site. Now, some patients required more than 70 operations over months or even years, needing numerous skin grafts and tube pedicles, rebuilding hands, noses, eyelids, etc. Taking unburnt tissue from distant sites to reconstruct and replace burnt tissue was new and experimental, making McIndoe a pioneer and his patients guinea pigs. And we'll come back to that. One of McIndoe's greatest innovations was his approach to the patient's psychological rehabilitation, which prior to him had been given little consideration. Because of their disfigurement, the patients felt depressed and isolated. To combat this, he brought a number of changes to his ward at the Queen Victoria Hospital. He established a new level of communication with his patients so that they would know what to expect for treatments, and a degree of confidence and trust between surgeon and patient would be formed. No patient question was ever turned aside, and patients even watched their fellows being operated upon so as to be well informed when it came to their turn. Segregation of officers and other ranks in the wards was abandoned to improve morale. Commissioned and non-commissioned ranks would occupy the same wards and receive the same treatment in every respect. McIndoe even instigated drinking of alcohol in the wards in East Grinstead to cheer them up. He also insisted that they return to uniform to restore their pride. As for the staff, two things were expected. First, that they should be competent to do their jobs, and second, that they should give their complete loyalty to the one objective of trying to secure the eventual return to society of a whole person. And that was the big challenge, getting disfigured patients out of Ward 3 and back into the community. McIndoe encouraged his patients to go out of the hospital and into the community. The hospital had no formal visiting hours and had very relaxed rules about what time the patients had to return each night. As for the public of East Grinstead, which is the neighborhood where the hospital is located, they were encouraged to accept his patients as guests, to talk to them, buy them drinks, and take them into their homes. McIndoe invited the public to come into the hospital as nurses, photographers, flower arrangers, and regular visitors. Now, the final step in preparing the patients for a return to the world was to help them work again. McIndoe intuitively recognized the therapeutic value in working and taught them to rediscover how to use badly mutilated limbs. His objective was to return an injured person to the community as an economically independent member of that community. Workshops were set up to assist future employment, and local businesses were encouraged to teach them new skills. Many got involved in high-tech manufacturing, including the manufacture of aircraft instruments. Reed and Sigrist, the aircraft instrument manufacturers, set up a small satellite factory on the hospital grounds with a group of five of their own employees to train and check the work done by patients, who were put to work making turn and bank indicators and other instruments. They were paid a small hourly rate for their work, 
After a year, it turned out that the production per man hour was greater than that of the parent factory, while the rejection rate of tested instruments was lower. Now let's talk a bit more about the patients themselves. In June of 1941, a number of them formed a group called the Guinea Pig Club. Only patients who had undergone plastic surgery at the Burns Unit could join. Originally called the Maxillonians Club, after McIndoe's maxillofacial unit, the name changed after a patient jokingly shouted, We're nothing but a plastic surgeon's guinea pigs. As most of the men knew that reconstructive plastic surgery was in its infancy, and that many of the methods used on them were new and untested. Quick aside, the reason guinea pigs are used as a colloquial term for an experimental subject are because we've been using them for experiments for centuries after the Spanish brought them to Europe from South America. This is because of their many biological similarities to humans. Now regardless of how you may feel about animal experimentation, it's interesting to know that a number of discoveries were made using guinea pigs. This includes the discovery of vitamin C in 1907, because like us, but unlike most animals they required in their diet, the discovery of adrenaline and the bacteria that cause tuberculosis. This last one was by the famous German scientist Robert Koch. In fact, one source claims that experiments on guinea pigs have contributed to 23 Nobel Prizes in medicine or physiology. So although the guinea pig club was not his idea, McIndoe strongly encouraged it. He was known as the chief guinea pig, or the maestro, and in 1943 became the club's first president, and was later designated life president. During the Battle of Britain, most of the club members were fighter pilots, but by the end of the war, about 80% were from bomber crews under RAF Bomber Command. And at the beginning, most members were British, but as the war dragged on, there were Canadians, Australians, New Zealanders, and by the end of the war, this list included Americans, French, Russians, Czechs, and Poles. The club demonstrated some black humor. The secretary was a flight lieutenant whose injuries prevented him from writing, and the treasurer a flying officer whose injuries prevented him from walking. But given that these patients stayed in hospital for months or even years, and were visibly disfigured, the club played a crucial role in creating a social network. Even after the war, regular get-togethers were organized to ensure that the spirit of Ward 3 was kept alive. The club set up a welfare fund to help needy members and even assisted members in finding employment. Every year they would meet for a weekend reunion in East Grinstead to socialize and sing the guinea pig anthem. We'll come back to that. Membership continued for more than 60 years across 19 countries and 5 continents. At its peak, there were 649 members, but by the time of the final meeting in October of 2007, membership was down to 96. Still an amazing run. In fact, a movie is in the works now about the guinea pig club. Now, McIndoe himself was made a commander of the Order of the British Empire in 1944 and was knighted in 1947 in recognition of his exceptional work on reconstructing the bodies and minds of thousands of burned young men during the war. In that same year, one of his ex-pilot patients invited McIndoe to East Africa. He fell in love with the Tanganyika countryside, which is now part of Tanzania, and took up farming on Kilimanjaro. Together with two of his former pupils, Tom Reese and Michael Wood, they drew up a plan to provide medical assistance to remote regions of East Africa. The African Medical and Research Foundation was founded in 1957. The following year, 1958, McIndoe assisted in founding the British Association of Surgeons, later renamed the British Association of Plastic, Reconstructive, and Aesthetic Surgeons. Now, two years later, on April 11, 1960, Dr. Archibald McIndoe passed away at the age of 59. Many of the reconstructive techniques used today in burn surgery and hand surgery are influenced by him. The Blonde McIndoe Research Foundation continues to do innovative research into skin wound repair. 
The African Medical and Research Foundation now works across all of Africa. But despite all of this, Mackendo's greatest legacy is in his care of the RAF pilots and crew during the Second World War, not only rebuilding their faces and bodies, but also their lives. Mackendo himself once said that to keep them together is the secret of success. The Guinea Pig Club was a unique peer support group, so we should end on the words of the Guinea Pig Anthem, which was adapted from the World War I song, Fred Carnell's Army, and sung to the tune Aurelia by Samuel Sebastian Wesley. Here goes. We are Mackendo's army. We are his guinea pigs. With dermatomes and pedicles, glass eyes, false teeth, and wigs. And when we get our discharge, we'll shout with all our might, Per ardua ad astra, we'd rather drink than fight. John Hunter runs the gasworks. Ross Tilly wields the knife. And if they are not careful, they'll have your flaming life. So guinea pigs, stand ready for all your surgeon's calls. And if their hands aren't steady, they whip off both your ears. We've had some mad Australians, some French, some Czechs, some Poles. We've even had some Yankees. God bless their precious souls. Well, as for the Canadians, huh, that's a different thing. They couldn't stand our accent and built a separate wing. And then it repeats the first verse. A note of explanation, the Latin phrase in the song per ardua ad astra is the motto of the Royal Air Force, among others, and translates to through struggles to the stars. And these men certainly had their struggles, which were made at least a little more bearable by the skills and compassion of Dr. Archibald McIndoe. So that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. The next episode comes out on July 14th, which is Bastille Day in France. In honor of that, we'll cover Dominique Jean Leray, the chief surgeon of Napoleon's Grand Army and an innovator in battlefield medicine. That should be a good one. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes and leave a comment there. Follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. And as always, thanks for listening. Thank you.